How many medieval weapons are there in the Houses of Parliament? Which Downing Street cat has caused the biggest diplomatic incident? And why are so many MPs whipped regularly, and not just in their private lives? I'm John. I'm Rob. And I'm Kess, and we're here to tell you all about the unhinged world of British politics. We're ranking all the Prime Ministers from Robert Walpole to the modern day. We'll be telling the story of each Prime Minister's life, legacy and premiership. Extra cash, a dukedom, even a garter. No matter what they walked away with, we'll be casting judgement and deciding whether they are... A write-on or a write-off. We are Primetime Prime Ministers. And remember... Never flinch, never weary, never despair. And find us wherever podcasts are found. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 128. Part two. No, not part two. Take two. Yes. This is Pope Leo VII. And this is the second time that we are recording this because we've had a rite of passage in that we've lost an episode for the first time ever. Although we didn't make it all the way through it. Not a whole one. (laughs) (laughs) and um i'm guessing at this point you don't remember much anyways no tusculum (laughs) which is good because now i can ask you this question we went through quite an overhaul in our last pope how do you expect this new pope is going to fare given how the last one went well let's just say bad you think it's gonna go bad okay (laughs) and i know that that's a genuine answer because That is not at all what you said last time. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get into it. Leo VII was born in Rome. And beyond that, we know nothing about his family other than to say he definitely was not a part of the House of Tusculum. At some point, he became part of the church. And there is reason to believe that he was a Benedictine monk for his early church career. But in April of 933, he was made the Cardinal Priest of San Sisto by our last Pope. Who was part of the Tusculum family, right? Yes, he was a part of the Tusculum family. Last Pope was Marozia's son. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, when Pope John XI died, still a prisoner of the Lateran, Alberic chose Leo to succeed his brother. We don't really have any evidence as to why Alberic chose Leo, but several historians point to the fact that Alberic was very partial and dedicated to monasteries, so Leo's background as a monk might have been the reason for his choice. Alberic is actually interested in restoring some sense of religious rigor to the Roman church, believe it or not. (laughs) Oh, rigor? He's like, yeah, we need to do some reformation, which seems really out of place considering like everything that his family has done to the papacy and what he did to the last papacy. But he's like, look, we need to get back on track and we need to reform. And he's about that. But also, according to Horace K. Mann, quote, He was sure to have argued that a simple and pious monk would not be likely to question his usurpation of papal temporal power. So, 
This is because, of course, Alberic is the man in charge, and the Pope currently has zero secular authority. So he's like, no simple-ass monk is going to push me around. (laughs) And by all accounts, being Pope was something that Leo had zero desire to do. In fact, it seems like he wanted nothing more than to retreat from the public church and return to monastic living. That's, you know what? Everybody who is like a monk or something just does not want to be Pope. Exactly. They want to be a monk. (laughs) We remember the whole Gregory the Great thing. He's like, I don't want this life. But Alberic had chosen him, and so Pope he must be consecrated on January 3rd of 936. But Leo's papacy was going to be very interesting. I will preface that by saying, not because he's going to do very much himself, but because he's going to be adjacent to a number of more interesting situations. And the first situation is one that was likely inevitable, because it centers on the conflict between Alberic, who is now patrician and master of the city, and Hugh, king of Italy and Alberic's stepfather that he'd driven and kept out of the city and thwarted from becoming Holy Roman Emperor. Ah, yes, the squabbles. The squabbles. And since the wedding day squabbles where Alberic had roused the city against King Hugh, Hugh had already tried besieging the city once to no avail. And now, shortly after Leo had been made Pope, King Hugh arrived at the walls of Rome yet again, fully intending to do a much greater and more protracted siege. Yeah, so I remember that I commented, like, imagine if the royal family was doing (laughs) this, like, now? Yeah, the drama. (laughs) (laughs) Just Charles being kicked out and showing up at the gate while Harry, not William, (laughs) but Harry is like, nope, I'm in charge now and I've roused everybody against you. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, I can't imagine it in this day and age. Especially because it's so personal, right? Like, this contest between Alberic and Hugh is not just about politics and power. This is super personal. Yeah. And at this point, Marozia is still imprisoned within the Castel San Angelo. She's not going to die until 937. So this means that negotiating any sort of peace between the two that's going to be, like, for the good of the city of Rome is going to be insanely difficult, if not entirely impossible. And Leo is clearly not up to the task. Oh no, he can't even put up boundaries that say he's going to be a monk still. Exactly! He has no influence over Alberic, and Hugh is not going to care at all about the guidance of this puppet pope that's controlled by his enemy. (laughs) he's got no leg to stand on here but Pope Leo knows someone who might be able to get through to both of these men and it's someone we've mentioned a few times already in recent episodes I will give you a hint it's not Marozia not Marozia do you have any guesses? oh okay so let's see if I can actually remember (laughs) 
It's some just churchy dude. No. It is a churchy dude. It is a churchy dude. <laughs> but I don't know his name. <laughs> I have forgotten it. <laughs> it's Odo, the yes. famous abbot of Cluny. <laughs> there we go. As I said in the beginning, Alberic had a personal affinity for monasteries. And it turns out that Hugh was also a great patron of the monasteries who were undergoing the Cluniac reform under the rigorous guidance of Odo. And according to James E. Kiefer, author of The Early Abbots of Cluny, because Odo was such a strong example of the reform that he promoted and had like zero personal ambitions, he'd become this major figure of reverence and therefore the perfect influential mediator. Huh. So Pope Leo invites Odo to Rome, calling upon him to assist a peace negotiation and to prevent Rome from being subject to the siege that would have devastated the city once again and further damaged the state of the church. And Odo does come to Rome, and he actually successfully affects a peace deal between Alberic and Hugh through a marriage contract where Alberic would marry Hugh's daughter, Alda. Um, okay. Yeah. His stepfather is also about to become his father-in-law. Yeah. Mm. These noble relations are just so messy. <laughs> They're very messy. Let's not forget that Hugh is married to Marozia, who was married to his brother before that, too. This is not so much a web as a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> we should also mention that it certainly helped negotiations that Hugh and his besieging forces were already starting to falter due to famine and a surprising amount of death of their horses. Not the horses! Yeah, the poor horses. They are they are dying early because of the famine. They didn't do anything. They don't even have a part in this. They don't have a say. Innocent horses. Terrible <laughs> people. I mean, they'll yeah. eat your fingers, but mostly innocent I horses. Mean, if you put your fingers close enough for a horse to eat, aren't you just a little bit asking for it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So Hugh's forces are already struggling. They're experiencing famine. Things are not going well. So they are keen to mediate peace. But Odo is without a doubt the man who is making this happen. And Pope Leo is very, very grateful because this is something he could not have made happen. <laughs> so in return, Leo issues further bulls of privilege and protection for Cluny. Subiaco, and other monasteries where Odo was promoting his monastic reform. Oh, I thought you were going to say, so then Leo just gives over the papacy to Odo. <laughs> Odo is the kind of man who also absolutely does not want to be Pope because he wants to be a monk, but he also has the cojones to set those boundaries really Fair. strongly. <laughs> no personal ambition, this guy. So what's more, Odo opts to stay in Rome for a little bit of time, during which he also enacted widespread reform and restoration in the monastic centers in and around the city. Perfect. You know, the thing that the Pope's supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Odo's Pope right now. Odo is basically acting Pope, even though he doesn't want to be. He's just like, I'm going to go and fix all of your shit. 
<laughs> oh. Next thing you're going to tell me, he's he's consecrated several bishops. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that if he would have done that, Leo still would have just been like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Please help. Can we Dark Horse give Odo a bunch of points instead? <laughs> Odo deserves points for sure. Before this episode, we have a whole special on monasteries coming out where we're going to talk a lot about Odo. So he is he's sort of in his own way getting a special episode. <laughs> okay. Now, in particular, Odo is credited with implementing restoration of St. Paul's outside the walls, where he opted to reside during his stay. He also expelled resistant monks at St. Andre's and founded the monastery of Our Lady on the Aventine when Alberic gifted Odo the palace where he'd been born. <laughs> Here, you can have a palace. Nah, nah, I do not need that. This is now a place monks live. <laughs> Yep, very rigorous monks. So clearly, Odo is the guy of this age, right? Mm-hmm. In Catholic Rome, the world of Christianity, Odo is doing so much more than the Pope. But the Pope still cared about reform, and he was eager to spread that influence where he could, even if it was going to be in the shadow of the Cluniac efforts. And this is evident in Leo's appointment of a new archbishop in Germany, Frederick of Mainz. Now, Leo wanted to capitalize on the increasing religiosity of East Francia at the time, given that the king of East Francia, Henry the Fowler, and his son Otto were overseeing quite a proliferation of monastic development at the time. I assume that's fowler like chicken and not fowler like gross. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it is fowler as in chicken. And it's also important, like I said, I mentioned his son Otto there. We're going to be coming back to Otto always and forever soon enough. So Always and forever? Is he our new... Uh, Sunday, 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 Easter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then Auto 2, and then Auto 3. We're going to be with the autos for a while. Let me just put it this way. Um, I'm writing our episodes a year in advance right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm still writing about an auto. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so that. Can we get someone to draw them as otters? Because... <laughs> I think that would be great. Great merchandise. Okay, I'm putting it out to our listeners. I mean, we haven't even gotten in to the Etonian papacy yet. So we'll see from this point forward. I'm going to now imagine all of the autos as otters. <laughs> Audience, somebody with artistic talent, please make that happen. Because <laughs> that's just going to be so amazing going forward. <laughs> the otters. <laughs> the Otteronian papacy. <laughs> All right, but we're not talking about Otto yet. He's just, he's just sort of there. He's just a hint right now. We're talking about chickens. Frederick of Mon... Well, he's the king. Henry the Fowler, chicken man, and otters. Do chickens and otters go together? I feel like that would be dangerous. That would be very dangerous. The king of East Francia, Henry the Fowler, he's got a lot of monasteries developing in his territory and leo is appointing a new archbishop 
explore Germany in Frederick of Mainz. Now, in a surviving letter, Pope Leo urges this new Archbishop Frederick to approach clerical obedience at every level and discipline any cleric of any level that was failing in their rigor or observance. Quoting from the letter, In these our days, times full of danger have come upon us, whilst charity has grown cold. Iniquity so abounds that well nigh the whole order of things is upset. There does not seem to be a place whereon religion may rest. I feel like this is a pornocracy. (laughs) Why is he even... He's just shouting to the void, basically. <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, there is this whole Cluniac reform that's happening with Odo, right? So he is basically trying to ride the coattails of this. Yes. Yes, everything is terrible in the papacy, but we're going to bring it back. We're going to do all of the good things. So please be rigorous. But there's something else that stands out in this letter that we need to address. Frederick seems to have been an exceptionally zealous archbishop, and he had turned his attention to a particular group of non-Christian residents in his city. Any guesses? Vikings. Non-Christian? Vikings would have been relatively-ish. Well, some of them would have been Christianized by now. (laughs) Eventually. Um... Who else is up there? Oh, Who's God. living in Germany? Who is living in Germany? Huh. Um, Druids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a little north, but no. Um, it's the Jews. Oh, okay. Well, we need to leave them alone. <laughs> well, exactly. We've not had cause to touch upon Judaism in Europe for quite some time in this podcast. And of course, that is a topic that could absolutely be its own podcast. But I do want to acknowledge that in the 10th century, Mainz had a robust and thriving Jewish population, which in turn had contributed to Mainz being this robust and thriving city, which would eventually be the home of the very important and influential Jewish scholar Gershom ben Judah. But... Archbishop Frederick was very troubled by the Jewish presence in his city and was prepared to either carry out baptism of the Jews by force or drive them out of the city. And so he sought advice from the Pope as to which of these were preferable options. Ugh, I don't like it. Yeah, not great. So in this letter we have from Pope Leo, he refused to condone the forced baptism of Jews, but did give permission for the archbishop to drive Jews out of the city if they failed to embrace Christianity. Yeah. Not great. Mm-mm. This clearly was not effective, however, and by the 14th century, Mainz had the largest Jewish population in Europe, would be the center of Jewish life in Europe, and would feature prominently in the establishment of important Jewish law, education, and more. So sucked in Pope Leo and Archbishop Frederick. Just just have to mention it, because, you know, we're going to have to rate him on it. Yeah. And although, again, it has nothing at all to do with Pope Leo, I also want to mention that it is during his papacy that the famous and future patron saint of the Czech Republic 
Wenceslaus I, Duke of Bohemia, and posthumous king was murdered. Oh. Yes. Wenceslaus had been Duke of Bohemia since 921 after a rebellion that overthrew his mother, Drahomira, who had notoriously persecuted Christians. Wenceslaus was an enthusiastic Christian leader who emphasized the Latin rite rather than that ever-popping-up Slavonic rite and founded what would become the St. Vitus Cathedral of Prague before he was murdered in 935 in a conspiracy led by his brother Boleslaus, known as Boleslaus the Cruel. And so veneration for Wenceslaus was immediate. And he was recognized as a saint within two years of his death. And yes, this is the Wenceslaus from... Like the Christmas song? The Christmas song that is not actually the Christmas song (laughs) because it's for St. Stephen's Day, which is December 26th. (laughs) Not Christmas, but yes. (laughs) So there's that. And this is obviously the briefest summary of Wenceslaus because he's definitely a saint who could get his whole own bonus episode on Patreon in the future. I was definitely like, I don't know this man. Wait, there's a Christmas song. Is that right? (laughs) In the song, it's usually Wenceslas, but it's definitely Wenceslaus in the original. Well, you gotta go with, it just doesn't sound right. (laughs) No, Wenceslas, no. There is also a very famous square named after him in Prague. Oh, okay. I know nothing about a square. (laughs) Only Christmas songs. (laughs) St. Stephen's Day songs. (laughs) It's not even October. We don't talk about that holiday yet. (laughs) No, I'm planning for Halloween. Yes, Halloween forever. Now, why are we talking about Wenceslaus? Because that's all that we have on Pope Leo. Pope Leo VII died on July 13th of 939. There is no official record of his cause of death, but there is a salacious rumor that he died of a heart attack while having sex with his mistress. What? How many popes has that been now? A lot. <laughs> and there are no contemporary sources to actually quote this from, and it is not mentioned in The Sex Lives of the Popes by Nigel Cawthorn or Unzipped The Popes Bear All by Arthur Frederick Ide which gives me lots of reasons to cast some doubt, particularly because these authors do not hesitate for a second to jump on even a whisper about something saucy about a pope. Okay. But this is, this is a rumor. It just, I just feel like now it's been like the 12th pope that's, oh, maybe this happened and I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems extremely unlike. It seems more like we used to have token martyrdom, and mm-hmm. now we're in the pornocracy where it's like token salacious death. <laughs> so that's a thing. So he was buried in Old St. Peter's. His tomb was destroyed for New St. Peter's, and no epitaph survives. So now it's time to rate this pope. Uh, papatum infallium. It's not great. Not much is happening or has the ability to happen under the power of the Pope. We could argue, as E.R. Chamberlain does in The Bad Popes, that, quote, under Alberic, the Popes enjoyed the fullest freedom in their priestly and papal roles. Which is perhaps true, but it seems like that is because they couldn't do anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Horace K. Mann points out, however, that during this time, Rome was still an area of heavy pilgrimage, even on pain of violence due to invasion along the way. And that from this, we should acknowledge that the papacy still maintained some level of prestige around Europe that was not quite rock bottom that this period is generally known for. He says, From Rome and the Pope, however, no wars, nor rumors of wars, no difficulties, nor dangers of any sort have ever been able to keep the devout pilgrim. And in the 10th century, the dangers were anything but imaginary. And again, we may remark that many more or less isolated facts of this age, which are occasionally brought to the surface, prove that the prestige of the papacy in Europe in the 10th century was not so utterly dimmed as many are disposed to believe. All right. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay, cool. I don't <laughs> think so. Um, surely it is true that the legacy of the papacy was intact and that people who were devout Christians and wanted to pilgrimage to Rome would have continued to do so because of the legacy of the papacy and the the strength of the religion. This has nothing to do with the actual popes at the time. Mm-hmm. Odo's the man with the prestige and the power we want the pope to have. And he's definitely not the pope. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So what do we want to give Leo? <laughs> for that I cannot muster even a single point (laughs) okay I mean fair I can see an argument for a zero I had to think about this really carefully when I was writing this to try and mental gymnastic anything and the only thing I think I can give him a point for is the fact that he had the presence of mind or at least the wisdom to let Odo come to Rome and do this like he summoned Odo mm-hmm. to come to Rome to fix the problem uh, yeah I guess you know? so I'm gonna give him one singular point for knowing that Odo was the guy <laughs> but that's about it do you want to no. stick with zero yeah zero okay he will get a one in Papatum Valium. Fructus prohibitum? He maybe died having sex with his mistress. But probably didn't. No. A token point for having a rumor? Ugh. No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'll give him a token point for having a rumor, but you can continue <laughs> to give him a zero. He'll get a one. Infructus prohibitum. Seculari impactum. So this is a category he's probably going to get zero in because he's summoning Odo to negotiate. It's not the best look, right? He's not mm-hmm. doing anything to bring about... A peace is achieved. We've already given him one point for summoning Odo, so nothing there and then we have this horrible secular impact of being like yeah maybe you should just expel all the jews out of mines unless they embrace christianity like nope no points there no points yeah this is a hard zero i would give negative points for for the mines piece if i could fossium sanctus are you ready to see this man i i don't know if that a response 
<laughs> yeah, no, because before we started the episode, you and I, we always get on here and then we go and we take our pee break. And while you were gone <laughs> and I was pulling everything up, I opened the image of this dude and I laughed to myself. <laughs> and I'm like, wouldn't it be weird if Fry came back? And I was just laughing to myself. <laughs> so... Now uh, he makes me giggle, and um, here he is. Oh. What? <laughs> okay. Hang on. Yes. There's a dog with that yes. face, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, it definitely has, like, the, the, the beagle mouth, where it's, like, the frowniest frown because of jowl sinking. He looks like the grumpiest man. He's giving you side eye. The shadow of his mustache is increasing his... Oh! <laughs> yes. Yep. That's the look. That's not the dog <laughs> I was thinking of. But the, there is a side eye dog. This man is definitely giving hard side eye. This is the most side eye. <laughs> I, <laughs> I also have to say in evaluation of this image that he looks very modern like he's got the short really short hair the beard is relatively well, he does have a tonsure yeah but you could almost like if you squinted and didn't see the tonsure this could be a very grumpy man walking down the street mm-hmm yeah his beard is neatly trimmed and it makes it look like he has the largest butt chin in history. <laughs> it does. I, don't, I genuinely don't know how to rate this one. Because it makes me laugh. But it's... I mean, the side eye is worth a couple points. Yeah, probably. Um, I, I can give him a two. Okay, I was thinking about a three so i'll give him a three you give him a two he'll get a five and when divided out that's 1.25 for facial sickness are you still sending me side eye dogs yes you are <laughs> that one is definitely the first one because it's side eye but it's also like ew mm -hmm. how dare you he's very grumpy about the side eye <laughs> it's that little girl with the two black teeth, giving you like, ooh. <laughs> Tempest Pontificus. January 3rd of 936 to July 13th of 939. Three and a half years and a score of 0 0.875. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. No, <laughs> definitely not. No. <laughs> No, but that brings us to his total score, which is a astoundingly unimpressive 4.125. We can't make him the saint of side-eyeing dogs. He would be the saint of side-eyeing dogs if he had canon bonus round. Absolutely. It would definitely happen. But he is not. And he has scored terribly. But he is also in the company of popes who have scored terribly so there's that and now i need to ask you a question that i know the answer to fry do you think this man is papally enough pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull no no not at all it's definitely not going to happen he's not even 
the greatest Christian man in Rome at this time. No. He's not even the guy. Papal bull for Odo? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have happened. 100%. So that brings us to the end of our episode, and we have a thank you to make for our patrons who are absolving their temporal punishments. So thank you to Emily Nolan. Ego te absolvo. And with that, we can say thank you for listening and goodbye. 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 <laughs> Don't be creepy. <laughs> Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the fabulous papal history podcast, Popular History, where you can also find cardinal numbers, ranking the cardinals of the Catholic Church, and coming up soon, also Habemus Pointsum, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions that he loves so much. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. Get it? It's like popular, but with an E for the popes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifax on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifaxwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. (laughs) 